Section two of Good Sense. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Good Sense by Paul Henri Thierry, Baron Dolbach. Translator unknown. Section two. Parts eleven through twenty four. Eleven. Religious fears expose men to become a prey to impostors. He who from infancy has habituated himself to tremble when he hears pronounced certain words requires those words and needs to tremble. He is therefore more disposed to listen to one who entertains him in his fears than to one who dissuades him from them. The superstitious man wishes to fear. His imagination demands it. One might say that he fears nothing so much as to have nothing to fear. Men are imaginary invalids, whose weakness empirics are interested to encourage in order to have sale for their drugs. They listen rather to the physician who prescribes a variety of remedies than to him who recommends good regimen and leaves nature to herself. 12. Religion seduces ignorance by the aid of the marvelous. If religion were more clear, it would have less charms for the ignorant, who are pleased only with obscurity, terrors, fables, prodigies, and things incredible. Romances, silly stories, and the tales of ghosts and wizards are more pleasing to vulgar minds than true histories. 13. Religion seduces ignorance by the aid of the marvelous. In point of religion, men are only great children. The more a religion is absurd and filled with wonders, the greater ascendancy it acquires over them. The devout man thinks himself obliged to place no bounds to his credulity. The more things are inconceivable, they appear to him divine. The more they are incredible, the greater merit, he imagines, there is in believing them. 14. No religion, if not ages of stupidity and barbarism. The origin of religious opinions is generally dated from the time when savage nations were yet in infancy. It was to gross, ignorant, and stupid people that the founders of religion have in all ages addressed themselves when they wished to give them their gods, their mode of worship, their mythology, their marvelous and frightful fables. These chimeras, adopted without exclamation by parents, are transmitted, with more or less alteration, to their children, who seldom reason any more than their parents. 15. All religion was produced by the desire of domination. The object of the first legislators was to govern the people, and the easiest method to effect it was to terrify their minds and to prevent the exercise of reason. They led them through winding by-paths, lest they might perceive the designs of their guides. They forced them to fix their eyes in the air, for fear they should look at their feet. They amused them on the way with idle stories. In a word, they treated them as nurses do children, who sing lullabies to put them to sleep and scold to make them quiet. 16. What serves as a basis to religion is most uncertain. 
The existence of a god is the basis of all religion. Few appear to doubt his existence, yet this fundamental article utterly embarrasses every mind that reasons. The first question of every catechism has been, and ever will be, the most difficult to resolve. In the year 1701, the Holy Fathers of the Oratory of Vendôme maintained in a thesis this proposition, that, according to St. Thomas, the existence of God is not, and cannot be, a subject of faith. 17. It is impossible to be convinced of the existence of a God. Can we imagine ourselves sincerely convinced of the existence of a being whose nature we know not? who is inaccessible to all our senses, whose attributes, we are assured, are incomprehensible to us? To persuade me that a being exists or can exist, I must be first told what that being is. To induce me to believe the existence or the possibility of such a being, it is necessary to tell me things concerning him that are not contradictory and do not destroy one another. In short, to fully convince me of the existence of that being, it is necessary to tell me things that I can understand. 18. It is impossible to be convinced of the existence of a god. A thing is impossible when it includes two ideas that mutually destroy one another, and which can neither be conceived nor united in thought. Conviction can be founded only upon the constant testimony of our senses, which alone give birth to our ideas and enable us to judge of the agreement or disagreement. That which exists necessarily is that whose non-existence implies a contradiction. These principles, universally acknowledged, become erroneous when applied to the existence of a god. Whatever has been hitherto said upon the subject is either unintelligible or perfect contradiction, and must therefore appear absurd to every rational man. 19. The existence of God is not proved. All human knowledge is more or less clear. By what strange fatality have we never been able to elucidate the science of God? The most civilized nations and among them the most profound thinkers, are in this respect no more enlightened than the most savage tribes and ignorant peasants. And, examining the subject closely, we shall find that by the speculations and subtle refinements of men, the divine science has been only more and more obscured. Every religion has hitherto been founded only upon what is called, in logic, begging the question. It takes things for granted, and then proves by suppositions instead of principles. 20. It explains nothing to say that God is a spirit. Metaphysics teach us that God is a pure spirit. But is modern theology superior to that of the savages? The savages acknowledge a great spirit for the master of the world. The savages, like all ignorant people, attribute to spirits all the effects of which their experience cannot discover the true causes. Ask a savage what works your watch. 
he will answer, it is a spirit. Ask the divines what moves the universe. They answer, it is a spirit. 21. Spirituality is an absurdity. The savage, when he speaks of a spirit, affixes at least some idea to the word. He means thereby an agent, like the air, the breeze, the breath, that invisibly produces discernible effects. By subtilizing everything, the modern theologian becomes as unintelligible to himself as to others. Ask him what he understands by a spirit. He will answer you that it is an unknown substance, perfectly simple, that has no extension, that has nothing common with matter. Indeed, is there anyone who can form the least idea of such a substance? What, then, is a spirit, to speak in the language of modern theology, but the absence of an idea? The idea of spirituality is an idea without model. 22. Whatever exists is derived from matter. Is it not more natural and intelligible to draw universal existence from the matter whose existence is demonstrated by all the senses and whose effects we experience, which we see act, move, communicate motion, and incessantly generate, than to attribute the formation of things to an unknown power, to a spiritual being, who cannot derive from his nature what he is not himself, and who, by his spiritual essence, can create neither matter nor motion? Nothing is more evident than that the idea they endeavor to give us, of the action of mind upon matter, represents no object. It is an idea without model. 23. What is the metaphysical god of modern theology? The material Jupiter of the ancients could move, compose, destroy, and create beings similar to himself. But the god of modern theology is sterile. He can neither occupy any place in space, nor move matter, nor form a visible world, nor create men or gods. The metaphysical god is fit only to produce confusion, reveries, follies, and disputes. 24. Less unreasonable to adore the sun than adore a spiritual deity. Since a god was indispensably requisite to men, why did they not worship the sun, that visible god, adored by so many nations? What being had greater claim to the homage of men than the day-star, who enlightens, warms, and vivifies all beings, whose presence enlivens and regenerates nature, whose absence seems to cast her into gloom and languor? If any being announced to mankind power, activity, beneficence, and duration, it was certainly the sun, whom they ought to have regarded as the parent of nature, as the divinity. At least they could not without folly dispute his existence, or refuse to acknowledge his influence. End of section 2 Recording by Roger Moline